Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to the coming week. Coming up, a genuine feel-good film starring the master of feel-good himself, Tom Hanks. Profiling Mr. Rogers. Boyd, please don't ruin my childhood. This piece will be for an issue about heroes. Do you consider yourself a hero? And we find out why sounds like this are rocking venues up and down the country once again. And we bid farewell to this broadcasting legend. As usual, I'm going to ask my guests to speak on a subject that I give them, and they will try and do that without hesitation, repetition, or deviating from the subject. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify and leave us a review. But first, in the week Robert Downey Jr. auditions for a part in Gavin and Stacey in his new movie Dr. Doolittle, we explore the worst accents in cinema history, starting with this atrocity. I'm Conor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. I was born in 1518 in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loch Shiel. Now I am immortal. That was Christoph Lambert in Highlander. Why do Hollywood actors struggle with British accents? Robert Downey Jr. has been pilloried for his attempt at Welsh on the new release of Dr. Doolittle, which sounds weirdly like a Spanish accent. We've no choice but to embark on this perilous journey. But he's joining a long and distinguished line of actors who have mangled the British tongue and others around the world. My father gave me now a tweet and told me I was bad. But then one day I learned a word to save me aching nose. The, the biggest word you ever heard and this is how we go. <laughs> you can't help laughing at that. <laughs> joining me in the studio to share their thoughts on accents are the Daily Mail's film critic Brian Viner and our entertainment expert Claudia Connell. Uh, Claudia, yeah. Dick Van Dyke, you can't beat him, no, can you? No, it's always the first one that comes into anyone's mind when you say right think of the worst accent you've ever heard in film yeah how did it ever come about brian how did dick van dyke ever try and play a cockney the, the thing about that is that he that he sort of his charm in that film kind of transcended his accent it didn't really matter i mean it was terrible well now there must be some mistake your dad's a fine gentleman and he loves you. And I think he's the first to acknowledge it now at the grand old age of 90, whatever he is, <laughs> that it was terrible. But, you know, it kind of didn't matter. Whereas I've seen New Doolittle film that you just talked about and Robert Downey Jr. It, it, that Welsh accent is, you know, it's not the worst I've ever heard. It's not great either by any means. The irony is that he's playing opposite Michael Sheen, uh, <laughs> who, who is genuinely she, a Welshman, yes. who plays an Englishman or, you know, a very kind of right. posh, a bit of a posh rotter. So whether Michael Sheen gave Robert Downey Junior some tips I don't know but they didn't really totally pay off but what he doesn't have is what Dick Van Dyke did have which was charm you know that there was such charm in his performance as Bert the Chimney Sweep wasn't there that but I don't think Downey has that in the in the new Doolittle film. Well he was on Graham Norton uh, last week rather proud of his accent you know it was apparently historically apt <laughs> because there was a character a bit like Doolittle from history that he was trying to ape who well, was Welsh. Well he, he only seems to be able to do it in a whisper so he kind of whispers this Welsh accent throughout the film it's it's quite odd. Claudia, continually, British actors are going to America yeah. and doing American accents. Yeah. Does the uh, journey in the opposite direction work? Well, I, I th maybe it's hard for us to judge because I mean, we're talking about terrible English accents and maybe to an American ear, it sounds perfectly OK because I'll hear a British star do an American accent and I think, well, that sounds great. I've got a friend in America who 
genuinely didn't know that Hugh Laurie was a Brit because his accent in-house was so amazing. So clearly he was great at doing an American accent there. Well, let's hear from Hugh Laurie in-house. Hello, sick people and their loved ones. In the interest of saving time and avoiding a lot of boring chit-chat later, I'm Dr. Gregory House. You can call me Greg. I'm one of three doctors staffing this clinic this morning. It sounds to me like Hugh Laurie doing an American oh, accent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly what it is. <laughs> He's actually on the new Avenue 5 being rather clever with his accent because he starts off apparently as the captain of this starship who is American. His accent's a bit odd and uh-huh. dodgy and then it turns out he's actually an English actor pretending okay. to be American. Right. Wow, but Brian, I mean, there seem to be more and more Brits going over there. I mean, your favourite film of all time, Little Women, yeah. of the four little women the four daughters three of them were from the British Isles yeah yeah and the other one was Australian (laughs) just because my dreams are different than yours doesn't mean they're unimportant I think it seems to be part maybe they teach it in drama school or something uh, the American accent certainly seems to expand an actor's career if they can do a good American accent think of people like Damien Lewis in Homeland and um, Dominic West in The Wire you know they they also similar to uh, Hugh Laurie they convinced totally as as Americans I think where Claudia and I were talking about this before i think where actors from both sides of the atlantic come a cropper is when they try and do regional accents so there's a sort of standard american accent that our people our actors can do and there's a sort of standard british accent that they can mostly do like rennie zellweger and bridget jones and things like that at times like this continuing with one's life seems impossible and eating the entire contents of one's fridge seems inevitable but when they try and get regional like and I believe there's a clip of Anne Hathaway in one day then that's when it goes badly wrong let's hear from poor old Anne Gate crashed my birthday party called me Julie and spilt red wine down my top ouch well I'm sorry about that no not at all you're delightful which particular region of Great Britain was she meant to be from, Brian? It was meant to be Yorkshire. The Yorkshire, Yorkshire accent, Yorkshire, yes, yeah. it was all over the place. Again, she's acknowledged since then that it, it was pretty dire, her accent. I think she said that she watched old uh, episodes of Emmerdale, or Emmerdale Farm, as it was then, to, in order to perfect her accent. I think you're right there, Brian. I think posh English is something that, that they do very well. I mean, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow was excellent, I thought, in Sliding Doors as a kind of slony yeah. uh, woman. And very uh, good in Shakespeare in Love as well. She was she did that as well yeah we've got a clip from her in Shakespeare in Love I loved the writer and gave up the prize for a sonnet I was the more deceived yes you were deceived I did not know how much I loved you. I think the master of terrible accents, uh, <laughs> terrible English accents, though, was a long time ago. Marlon Brando, surely, Brian. Yes, he did. He played um, Fletcher Christian, didn't he, in Mutiny on the Bounty, and he was, it was terrible. And and if you listen to it now, I think you can tell he's, you know, he's a, he's actually a bit of a Cockney mm. putting on a posh voice. I'm going to give you a moment, though, to savour. This is Marlon Brando. <laughs> That's the king's daughter you're tampering with. You should know better than to risk his displeasure. Kindly satisfy your lust elsewhere. <laughs> Quite actually, sir, we were simply discussing the... the incredible variety of Tahitian vegetation. It was... Acknowledge the order. Lust to be satisfied elsewhere, sir. But not today. Report on board immediately. Lust to be satisfied elsewhere. Mm, that was a good one. Um, Claudia, what about on television? Have you seen any really good 
accents coming oh, through recently. Oh, good accents. Oh, I, I was going to talk about Stephen Graham, who's in White House Farm at the moment, who's a brilliant actor. He's probably one of the best actors around at the moment, but his Welsh accent in that is is pretty dodgy. Are well, you on soccer now, Stanley? Well, he's traditionally a scouser, isn't yes, he? Yes, yeah. That's his, that's his own accent. But it's, yes, it's very exaggerated um, Welsh accent. And he can't make it. Yeah, there's lots of uh, sort of banter on Twitter about how uh, over the top his Welsh accent is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's true, though, that British actors, because he can do American, Stephen yeah, Graham. Yeah, he does he American the Irishman really well, very well yeah. But he can't do it one of his own regional accents. Yeah. And that's true of um, Jane Leaves in Frasier, who tries to... Oh, that's right. It's in Lancashire. Do, uh, she's supposed to be from Manchester, yes. and she's, she's from Surrey. Yeah. And if you're a Brit listening to that... She's the, the weak link That's all the way right, through yes, just because of her, how bad her accent, accent was. Yeah. Yes. Let, let's, yeah. let's just hear that. Just reminders of Frasier. Donnie, I've just put your mum's wedding dress on. A mini skirt? It's obscene. You can see. What? No, I took the green box. Oh. <laughs> no problem then. Bye. <laughs> I took the wrong dress. Oh. This is from his mother's third marriage in 1968 in Las Vegas. Oh. <laughs> the other thing about that was that she had a thick Yorkshire accent and then her brother appeared and apparently he seemed he to come cockney. from the East End. That was right, yeah. Sorry about that. I'm a bit sleepy today. I think I'm coming down with a cold. Yeah, that was all very strange. But again, maybe maybe Americans didn't pick up on that. I don't know, maybe they all just have a sort of vague British accent. Some people do it absolutely perfectly, don't they? I mean, Michael Sheen as Brian Clough um, absolutely got the Middlesbrough accent to perfection. You know what you're doing today? Be big, be strong. Any chance I get, flat and ball flipping madly. Good lad. He bullies you. I mean, some people can do it and other people can't. Maybe maybe it's all in the casting. Well, actually, he's, he's playing um, Chris Tarrant in a, a drama that's coming up later this year. It's the story of the, the coughing major on, you know, who wants to be a millionaire. And he, he gave people a sort of a, a preview of his Chris Tarrant on the Graham Norton show recently. And he's brilliant. So he's, as well as accents, he's a really sort of wicked mimic as well. Right, I'm going to pin you down then, uh, Claudia. Who gets it right for you and who's been the worst culprit? I think I think he does a very good American accent is the the young British actor Daniel Kaluuya he was in um, Get Out you know sort of a horror oh, film yes. Get Out and yes. he, he was one actually I I thought he was American until I saw him on a chat show so I think he does he pretty much seems to only play American parts at the moment I think he does a brilliant accent I just said there you didn't call anyone no why not <laughs> I don't know I just if I did make it real and your miss my oh John Cheadle in Ocean's Eleven do you remember he was playing oh, yes. the yeah the Cockney yes. sort of yeah the Cockney thief in that and he was yeah he that was an awful Cockney accent are you accusing me of booby trapping it'll be nice working with proper villains again and Brian well, actually, Daniel Kaluuya, you've just mentioned, yeah. he, he's in a film this week called Queen and Slim, mm. where he plays he plays an American from the, I think, from the South. I sent you a very well-crafted message three weeks ago. I spell-checked it and everything, got crickets. Then today, out of the blue, you hit me up asking if you want to grab dinner. What changed? 
the state decided to execute my client. Yeah. Uh, and you're right, he's, he is absolutely uh, brilliant. So yeah, he'd be he'd be one of mine. And I think the worst, even worse than Dick Van Dyke, and we, we heard a clip earlier, is Anthony Lapalia, who plays Daphne Moon's brother in Frasier. I think that is that is the is worst accent. I think he is. Yes, I think he's Australian. Yeah, yeah I think he is. Yeah. And he does a very good American. Everybody yeah. thinks he's American because he's, yeah. he sounds American. But his British accent <laughs> was absolutely <laughs> terrible. <laughs> right then, lads. Thanks for that. <laughs> and now, this week's guest, a man with the finest radio voice in broadcasting history. He's had a career spanning more than 50 years, journeying from pirate radio to becoming a stalwart of BBC's output. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back, back into now. This year, the great Johnny Walker is bringing the Sounds of the 70s radio show on tour with a live band. Um, so, Johnny, what, what is it about the 70s that refuses to die? Well, the music was very good. There were so many different styles of music. Um, it was incredibly competitive. Bands like the Rolling Stones up against the Who and Led Zeppelin. Then you've got uh, the emergence of David Bowie, glam rock, punk rock, 76, disco. So there were a huge amount of um, musical styles, plus the fact, I think, or the, a lot of the emails I get, people say you revive memories of a time when life seems so much simpler uh, and less complicated and less pressured than it is today. And I guess people were leaving school, getting their first job, falling in love for the first time, going to their first concerts, maybe going to university and the freedom that represented. So I think it's the music plus the memories it brings back. So how are you going to squeeze all that material into one live show? <laughs> well, we've managed it somehow. We always have, have an interview with somebody who was around in the 70s or who certainly loved 70s music. So that takes up a, a bit of time in the second hour. We've had Roger Daltrey, all sorts of, all sorts of people have, have come in. So having a guest, uh, Steve Harley was in uh, the other Sunday. So that was good. Plus a lot of, of emails from people. We have a Johnny's Jukebox with about 300 records in and, and a, a listener suggests a, a Jukebox record. So somehow it, it all works. And then we just say, if you want to mention or a record, uh, email or text or tweet. And the number of texts we get is just incredible. So we, um, we get bombarded, but that's fantastic. The, the, the reaction is really good. I'm going to put you on the spot now, uh, Johnny. But say, suggest I'm, I'm, I'm on Desert Island Disc. I'm going to cast you aside with one <laughs> track from the 70s. What is the sound of the 70s for Johnny Walker? The one track you would take? I would have to go. He's my favourite artist. Uh, I think he's the greatest live artist in the world. And he's a man who's stayed in touch with uh, his roots and his audience. Uh, it'd be Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run. Oh, we'd be together on that one, Johnny. We'd be floating <laughs> off into the sunset on that one. Absolutely magnificent. You used to do um, a, a brilliant series on the radio called Johnny Walker Meets, where you met virtually everyone, A to Z, Rock Royalty, Elton John to Jimmy Page. Is there anyone you've never met that you really would like to meet? People who have died, really. 
so there's no way that um, I can do an interview with them. But I adored Otis Redding in the 1960s when I was on Caroline. I used to play a lot of uh, Town and Motown and Atlantic Stax music. Sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. I left my home in Georgia. And I remember one year campaigning for Otis Redding. I said, vote for Otis Redding in the Melody Maker poll. Vote for Otis, vote for Soul. And for the first time, uh, I think Elvis Presley to be n number one male vocalist for 11 years. And that year, I think 67, Otis Redding was the number one male vocalist. So I think the, the Caroline audience helped that happen, which was lovely. I mean, it was tragic that he died in a plane crash um, in 1967. Um, and I remember doing a tribute to him on Radio Caroline. It was a very sad night. So he was somebody I would love to have interviewed. Uh, Jimi Hendrix would have been another one. When he came over from America to England, he was brought over by uh, Chaz Chandler, who used to be bass player with the Animals, and he became a manager. And thought, well, I need to take... It's amazing how many artists need to go across the Atlantic to make it. And um, certainly Tina Turner, in the second part of her career, she had to come to the UK to, to recommence her career. And Charles Chandler thought we get to bring Jimi Hendrix from Seattle, USA, over to England. And he just astounded people with his guitar playing. And I'd have liked to have interviewed him. So it's mainly people who, who passed on, really. I noticed when I was uh, looking you up in, on, online and so on that uh, you were born the same day as Eric Clapton. Was there something in the air that night, uh, to quote uh, <laughs> a, a, a lyric? Well, I've always wondered. I mean, there are things that are very important, was your exact time of birth and also your location. So uh, Eric was somewhere in southern England, and I was in Birmingham, and I was born. But I've often thought, why aren't I a guitar hero <laughs> if uh, astrology really works? <laughs> so, um, but I do feel a real affinity with Eric. We've done a few interviews together uh, over the years. He always calls me John. Well, John, he said, the thing is this, John. So um, he, he, he's very nice. I've got a real soft spot for Eric Clapton. And somebody else, by the way, I've just thought that I'd love to have interviewed would have been Chris. You walked in, I woke up. I've never seen a pretty girl look so tough, baby. You got that look. Call you peach and black. Call me taking her back. Crucial. Yeah, he was an absolutely incredible artist. As a big fan of your your radio shows, uh, there was a there was a gap last year uh, where you had to take some time off for what you described as a heart upgrade. Um, how did it go? You sound in absolutely tip top form. Well, I think yeah, I think it went really well. And I mean, that was Mark Goodyear, heads up the production company. That's um, it's an independent company that makes sounds of the seventies for Radio Two. And uh, I think he he'd had a similar sort of heart thing. 
And he said, just say you're, you're having a heart up, upgrade. It was a triple bypass, actually. I'd had a couple of stents uh, a couple of years ago, um, put in blocked arteries, and um, I had a heart attack uh, in January. And then uh, February, I went in and had, um, had this triple bypass. So I'm in what people affectionately refer to as the zip club. <laughs> it's people who've got a sort of center zip down their chest. <laughs> so uh, touch wood, it's, it's, worked, it's worked very well. Uh, Johnny, it's a, a sad uh, week in, in many ways for uh, radio uh, broadcasting in that the, the great Nicholas Parsons um, passed on. Uh, did, did you know Nicholas? Did you work with him at any point? I met him once in Edinburgh because he used to go what's not been mentioned. He had an interview show at the Fringe every year for, for a long, long run. I mean, his work ethic, considering his age, was just incredible. And Paul Merton would take the mickey out of him relentlessly about being so old. But I remember him way back with Arthur Haynes when he was like um, Arthur Haynes, uh, you know, um, what you call the guy who's the butt of the jokes. Yes. Um, and Yeah, he was quite funny doing that. Then I think he was on Sale of, Sale of the Century as a host. Oh, of, that's uh, that right. TV he was, wasn't he? Yeah, he yeah. was. So he's had a, a, an amazing career. And then always, uh, and I'm a big fan of Just a Minute. I think it's a really good radio program. And he'd come on and he'd say the same sort of introduction every week. And then because of the internet, and people began to listen all over the place. He said, and welcome to all our listeners uh, in the country and all over the world. You know, he had this great <laughs> surprise in his voice that we brought to all over the world. Really kind of excited him. So, um, he was as sharp as a button doing that show. And uh, you, know, you have to be quick and you have to pay attention. And um, at, uh, at the age of 96, to still have been doing it was quite amazing. So a wonderful career. And uh, everybody, I think, takes their hat off to Nicholas Parsons um, for having such an amazing long career and, uh, doing, and doing so well. As we take our hat off to you, Johnny, as a, as a final thought, where can we see your Sounds of the 70s show when you're out live on the road? Well, that big company that does a lot of live shows, Live Nation, if you go to livenation.co.uk, all the tour dates are there. And I'm getting a lot of stick because there aren't dates up north and in Wales and in Scotland. So um, because of previous health issues and things, we thought we'd kind of start off a bit slowly and go to places where I could get back home the same evening. Um, but when we look at adding further dates, we'll certainly look at um, going to places further afield than, than the south of England. I suspect it's going to happen. Johnny Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics ignore what everyone else is saying and tell us what they really think about the week's new releases. First up, Daily Mail's film critic, Brian Viner. Uh, Brian, a good week or a bad week? Uh, it's, it's not a... Well, actually, it's a good week because there are, there are lots of films. I can only really have time to talk about two here, but uh, there are about six saturation releases, all in their different ways, probably worth seeing this week, so... The film that most people take notice of is called A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, largely because it stars Tom Hanks. And in fact, he's received a Best Supporting Actor Academy Award nomination for his brilliant performance as an American 
icon who we have not heard of on this side of the Atlantic called Fred Rogers, who was known in virtually every American household, as far as I can tell, as Mr. Rogers, because he had a, a show on children's television called Mr. Rogers's Neighborhood. And Tom Hanks plays him beautifully. He's a very kind, decent, benign, humble man who influenced generations of American children into being nice how you square that with kind of you know gun control and all that i don't know but uh, but he's not there he's a supporting part because the lead is played by matthew reese another we've been talking about accents he's another brit playing an american uh, he plays a rather cynical rather embittered journalist for esquire magazine who goes to interview mr rogers and the story really the film uh, follows the kind of arc of this Matthew Reese character, whose name is Lloyd, him becoming more in tune with his kind of sensitive side and becoming reconciled with his father, played by Chris Cooper, with whom he has a very difficult relationship. So it's it's all about what Mr. Rogers can teach him. I think we have a clip. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers. In here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbour? When Tom Hanks plays uh, Rogers, unusually uh, for a children's TV presenter, it turns out he hasn't actually got any skeletons in his closet, <laughs> which, no. which turns out to be a bit of a disappointment for the investigative reporter, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, uh, yes, and I was thinking, who can we compare him with on this side of the pond? You know, and you think, of, well, you know, he was a little bit like Rolf Harris before we found out things about Rolf Harris that, we, that were so kind of damning. But no, there were no skeletons. You know, he was a, he was a lay preacher. He was an extraordinarily kind decent giving man first you think well he's a little bit creepy this guy he speaks very slowly you know you think well he could quite easily turn out to be a bit of a monster but he really wasn't he really was a genuinely nice man tom hanks uh, has been nominated across the board for his performance this is a film directed by marielle heller is it because she's a woman that she hasn't been nominated or is it not perhaps up to the scratch of uh, as a directing I don't think it should have been that she should have been nominated simply because I don't think it's a film quite on the level of some of those others that have been been nominated for best picture it's it's nice it's certainly been very rhapsodically reviewed in the United States uh, and by a few critics here who've seen it at festivals but I I just thought it was a little bit tr- just a little bit kind of contrived in trying to tie the the, the, this character played by matthew reese lloyd is a new dad and the the symmetry between becoming a new father and his relationship with his own father um just to me seemed slightly kind of clunky Uh, come on brian i'm gonna put you i'm gonna you've got to come out here uh, hit or miss well i think i think it's it's kind of charming but i i would say you know and it will be a much bigger hit in the united states but here yeah a hit And the other film you've been watching also deals with a slightly different American hero. Fred Rogers was unequivocally a good man. This is about someone who, well, he had ups and downs as a hero, didn't he? Yeah, this is called Richard Jewell, and it's uh, directed by Clint Eastwood. Richard Jewell, a true story, Richard Jewell was the security guard who at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics spotted a rucksack, thought that it was suspicious, and it turned out indeed to be more than suspicious. It was a bomb. It 
I think a couple of people died, a lot of people were injured. A lot more people would have been killed, probably, if he hadn't been doing his job so well. So he was a genuine, bona fide American hero. But the FBI, slightly aided and abetted by the local press, the Atlanta Constitution newspaper, decided pretty quickly that actually they thought that maybe he had planted the bomb himself in an effort to be, apparently it's a thing, it's a genuine kind of phenomenon to be a, a, a fake hero, to be the person who has planted the bomb and then to, to, to appear to be heroic. So uh, they started investigating him. He was dragged through the mud. He was, you know, he, his life was turned upside down. It looked as though everybody started believing that it was him and it wasn't. And he was a, he was a inoffensive, very overweight character who he collected guns which didn't help because the fbi went and looked at the uh, searched the house and found this kind of collection of guns because he went hunting and all the rest of it he was an easy target to pick on an easy person to to nail this this bombing on but it, but it really wasn't him and he really was just doing his job extremely well so so yes he's a sort of unlikely hero in retrospect um and i think we have a clip richard you're a national hero now thank you sir but I was just doing my job. You always look at the guy who found the bomb, just like you always look at the guy who found the body. Jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. So Clint Eastwood tells this story. It's a little bit like Sully. I don't know if you saw Sully, the film about the, the pilot, if you remember, who landed his With plane. With Tom Hanks the, again. With Tom Hanks again, yeah. So it's a story of a, an, somebody doing a very heroic thing but then if you remember sully was also investigated because they thought that maybe it was pilot error that was responsible for that which it wasn't so it's eastwood finding a similar sort of character and weaving a, a, a very good film out of it so I, I thought it was um extremely engaging not really a story i knew very well kathy bates is up for an oscar as his mother she's does it extremely well but really the the standout performance is paul walter hauser who plays uh, richard jewell who is not an actor most of us would be terribly familiar with i think it's a really really brilliant performance eastwood is the master of straightforward storytelling isn't he what's interesting about this is it was kind of the very definition of trial by media wasn't it Yes, it was, yeah. And that's... So there's a, there's a real theme emerging in his... I mean, he, you know, we forget Clint Eastwood is, you know, just about 90. I mean, he's, he's a very, very old man, but he keeps... He's now... This is something like his 40th film. He keeps churning these out. And the last four or five of them have all been about ordinary people pitched into very extraordinary situations like Sully and like American Sniper, similar sort of thing. And then he did that film, which I thought actually was pretty rotten, about the um, the train to Paris, where those those backpackers jumped on the terrorist didn't really work that one but but yeah he and he tells these stories as you say very very straightforwardly no frills apparently you know there are no frills to him as a director he just kind of grunts get on with it and stop he doesn't even say cut you know he doesn't do all the things that directors are supposed to do but he's a very powerful director so has he come up with a hit or a miss? i think this time it's definitely a hit An agent thrills the Daily Mail's music critic. Uh, what have you been listening to? The first is the newie from Selena Gomez, who, like a lot of American female singers, she has 
come through the the Disney or Nickelodeon kids TV another child prodigy uh, prodigy and kind of you know I think you know started obviously with you know Britney Spears and Christina then Miley Cyrus and then more recently Selena and Demi Lovato even Ariana Grande she was a Nickelodeon star seems to be the the gateway for a lot of American female pop stars they start on kids TV and gravitate to the uh, the music studio she's had a bit of a rocky few years actually she um, she's overcome lupus the autoimmune disease and she's also had a kidney transplant so she's been away for four or five years and she's just come back with her third album rare and it's it's a decent confident comeback i think a lot of these singers it's making the transition from from child prodigy to kind of adult pop performer and um i think we've got a couple of tracks to listen to there's uh, the big single off the album was number one in america it's called lose you to love me maybe you can hear a bit Maybe it takes some listening, but on, on first hearing, that doesn't strike me as the most shrieking out originality. No, well, like a lot of American pop these days, the whole feel is slightly understated. I think she's she's very much on trend with this. I find the production on this record is almost a bit too subdued in places. It's a bit it's a bit muffled and it's almost kind of too understated. But I think it's a classic grower. Actually, there's a couple of there's another track. Um, Selena, she's you know, of Hispanic heritage, and uh, there's a track called Ring, which is a nice Latin pop number. Maybe we can have a listen to that. Obviously, you know I'm aware of that. I'm breaking hearts like a heart attack. Got them right with a carrot Wrap around my finger like a ring, ring, ring. They just like puppets on a string, string, string. I put it down, they hold me up. on a string that's a familiar well, pop yeah, lyric yes indeed um, I quite like that one it's it's very much in in the kind of vein of uh, Camilla Cabello's Havana and there's kind of a real kind of movement towards Latin reggaeton as they call it which is a kind of fusion of hip hop and an R&B I think it's actually a very good record and it's one that you do need to live with for a little while I, I've had it for a week or so and I was playing it at the car at the weekend and I actually do quite like it so I suspect I know where you're going on I this think one. This one for her third album. I think it's taken a while to get there, but it's a hit. And um, Adrian, every week we seem to be talking about One Direction solo projects, and this week is no different. Yes, this this week it's Louis Tomlinson with his debut album Walls. He's he's the last of the One Directioners out of the blocks with his his solo record and. Um, Louis, he, he's your kind of boy next door type. He's very much in the kind of Ed Sheeran, Louis Capaldi. He's, he's, whereas Harry and Zayn, um, they've kind of hot-footed it off to LA to the kind of American celebrity culture and making you know, big R&B and pop records. Louis staying very much closer to home. He's he's the uh, he's allowed. I think he even strapped on his football boots and played for Doncaster Rovers reserves a few years ago. I'm afraid to say I was sent to report on that game, you and went, I don't think, yeah. I don't think he actually touched the ball. But 
But anyway, we're not we're not here to talk about Louis' footballing no. career. So, uh, but musically, he's very much in the uh, he's in full to Oasis and Robbie Williams and and Catfish and the Bottlemen. It's a very indie guitar orientated record. I think we've got a track. There's an interesting track, the title track actually, Walls. Maybe we can have a listen to that. Was the day that I became the man that I am now. But these high walls came up short. Now I stand taller than them all. These high walls never broke my We were talking about accents earlier. There's no hint of the Doncaster accent in that uh, particular track, is there? Well, I think if anything, he's going more for the Mancunian accent. I think he's. It's uh, my problem with that track is it's almost too faithful an Oasis pastiche. It sounds very like that nasal tone. You mean? Yeah, and you know he he really is looking to to Liam Gallagher, uh, but it's almost like it's Oasis as done by Robbie Williams. It's uh, it's. uh, (laughs) But that track, funnily enough, it's so similar. The chorus is so similar to Oasis. Oasis. Acquiesce that he's actually given Noel a writing credit um, for the song, and I think therein lies the problem. Actually, it's almost he hasn't really found his own voice. I think it's a very skillful pastiche of a certain style. I mean, fair play to him. I think he does a very good job, but it's an album that I don't think he's really stamped his own identity on. So, hit or miss, then? Uh, I think it's it's a it's a fifty fifty call. But I think I just I. I haven't done a miss for a while, so I think we'll probably give him the thumbs down on this one. Oh, poor old Louis. Your first miss in a while. Now the last of this week's hits and misses, this time what's coming up on television with Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's TV critic. Claudia, what should we be watching this week? Well, tonight is the finale of Deadwater Fell on Channel 4. This has been Channel 4's big sort of first big new drama of the year with David Tennant as a star and he's the creepy Scottish village GP and he he survives a fire that kills his wife and his three daughters and it's um it's sort of a, yeah it's been four parts and it's a, it's a murder mystery and tonight sort of all the loose ends are tied up i think we i think we have a clip here that gives us a, a feel last night something very sad happened what did she do this was locked she had issues. I got her help. Did you see she had it in her to do something like this? Did you? This is a series that's kind of brought in all sorts of things. One of one of the most fashionable things in drama at the moment seems to be coercive control. Yes. Uh, there, there's an element of that going there's on, isn't there? There's a theme of that. And actually, that, that's one of my criticisms, because it very much started as um, a murder mystery. And then the sort of the relationship aspect of the two main couples almost seemed to take over and be- became a bigger story than the murder itself. Certainly in the final episode, I felt that that was the case. So that it sort of forked off in another direction. Are you poised on the edge of your sofa though? I mean is it working as a mystery? Is it working as uh, can you hardly wait to find out who did it? Well, I mean I I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I think people who are watching waiting for an incredible twist might be uh, a little bit disappointed. It's it, it's not awful. I I think the it's only four episodes and I think they were clever in the way that they let the sort of the the story build and the and the tension build. What you don't want when you you commit to a series is for it to 
suddenly fall flat at the end in the way that we saw with Gold Digger recently, with the Capture recently. I think you feel really let down. You think, hang on, I've given this four, five, six hours of my time and that's what you give me as an as an ending. And that that's not the case here. It's They do tie up the loose ends because that's another criticism of mine when it's, it's left open, almost like, well, we're hoping for a second series, but we're not sure. So um, this is it. You reckon this is it. This is one off. No more. No, no more I David Tennant. I, no, I don't see control. how they can. No, I don't see how they can come back with a second series of this. What always happens when it's it's the last episode? It's this is an hour long, and you're getting to fifty minutes, and they still haven't quite got there. <laughs> they, oh, they go, oh, come on, you've got to do it soon. You're not. Gonna, you're going to run out of time. So there's you know, a little bit of so like, hit or miss, Claudia. I'm going to say it's a hit. There's a, a comedy series coming out on uh, BBC, uh, which has been around for a very long time, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Inside Number Nine. I think it's been around for about six years now. It's from uh, Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith, who probably best known for League of Gentlemen. And it's um, it's a very clever idea. They're a standalone story. So each episode is half an hour long and each episode has new characters and it's, it's, it's a one-off story. And it's... I would say it's quite hit and miss. If you, I've watched it in the past and they're, they're either sort of brilliant or they, they don't quite work. This first series, which is on on Monday, is um, the first episode is about uh, a football game. It's a, a crucial game at the end of a season and it it's, takes place in a dressing room. So all the action in all of the inside number nines always takes place just in one room. And it's about referees who are offered a bung to throw the game. And it's good. It really works. And it's, it's genuinely funny and it's very clever. And what they always get in inside number nine is they get really good cast, you know, really good sort of supporting actors. It seems to be the thing that you want to be in if you're a British actor. And you've got Ralph Little in this one and David Morrissey is also in this one as well. I, I've always found it a very inventive series. Yeah, it's very clever. A, a it's little, very dark. I think you're right. Little up and down. It's very yeah. dark. Yes. It's very like League yeah. of Gentlemen there. Uh, has it got better would you say over time? I mean, is there anything in this series to match that, that fantastic episode called 12 Days of Christine? This is, um, it's too early to say. I've only seen the first one, but if, if this is an indicator of what's to come, then I think they have raised their game. I think it is It is good. Yeah, it does work. And they did a live one, didn't they? Oh, at did the they? end of the last know. series. Uh, they haven't got anything like uh, that up their no, sleeves not, this not time. No, not that I'm aware of, no. And, and where are you going on this, Claudia? I'm going to say that this is a hit. Well, now you know what's worth seeing, and frankly, what should be avoided. My thanks to Brian, Adrian and Claudia. Now let's find out what they're gossiping about on the other side of the Atlantic, and who better to tell us than the Mail's own Jackie Stephen. Uh, This week has seen both the Grammy Awards and an outpouring of public grief unlike anything seen in decades over in the States about the death of the basketball player Kobe Bryant. Uh, Jackie, what's it been like? Yes, it's it's absolutely tragic. Uh, Kobe Bryant, who played for the Lakers uh, for 20 years, so it's not so much gossip this week. It's just a tragic, tragic event. And not since Princess Diana died have I seen people so consumed by grief and in utter disbelief. I went out in the streets of New York just after I'd heard the, the news announced, and everybody on every street corner was hugging. They were hugging each other, crying. People were just absolutely stunned. 
And for people who don't really know who he is, or people don't, don't know at all who he is, this is like the equivalent of Ronaldo or David Beckham if something happened to them. This man was a huge sporting giant. And it's, do you know, I get emotional just talking about it. Because when I came to the States 11 years ago, I was in Los Angeles initially, and he was playing for the Lakers and playing spectacularly well. And I just feel incredibly emotional. It's, it's sad for everyone on board, obviously, and for him and his daughter. It's just something that's utterly overwhelming. I see that Italy is going to be taking a week of mourning because he lived there from the age of six uh, to 13. And uh, Bryant Park Station this morning, uh, somebody had put Kobe above Bryant there. It, it's just consumed the country. Ellen has done a TV show. I think it goes out in a couple of days' time, uh, in which she talks about her friend. Everyone has been talking about it. The Grammys, they all pay tribute to him. It's just utterly overwhelming. He, he was a real crossover star, as you say, not so big in this country. I mean, uh, the BBC, even uh, in their tribute, put out pictures of LeBron James instead of him. That's how little he'd come oh. registered there. Um, but uh, Absolutely incredible. In the States, he was huge. I mean, he also uh, won an Oscar in 2016 well, when he retired. Uh, he did a documentary about what it was like uh, to retire from basketball, and uh, he won the Oscar for short documentary in 2016. Now, not many sporting stars go on to win Oscars, so that was another achievement that he had. And he was with his daughter when the helicopter crashed. What were they doing? What was what was he up to now? They were going for some basketball practice. His daughter was actually a very very skilled basketball player herself, and when people used to say to Kobe, "Oh," you need to have a son to be able to pass on the legacy and his daughter would say don't worry I've got this and she was incredibly skilled and again it's just tragic for her as well and leaving a wife and the three other daughters and his parents there are pictures all over the press today of his father who's 65 he lives in Vegas utterly distraught it's I, I've never experienced anything like it in all my time in the States this this is obviously kind of coloured everything that's uh, happened in the states but before that the the grammy awards uh, were celebrated here we are together on music's biggest night celebrating the artists that do it best but to be honest with you we're all feeling crazy sadness right now because earlier today los angeles America and the whole wide world lost a hero and we're literally standing here heartbroken in the house that Kobe Bryant built. What did you make of that? Well, they weren't so much celebrated this year. There, there was a big cloud over them uh, because the head of the Grammys uh, was thrown out just beforehand because she said that it's all fixed. And it, that sort of left a sour taste in the mouth. And also, Alicia Keys, I mean, she's just dreadful. She cannot present. Brilliant artist, fantastic musician and singer, but, uh, you know, can't present. And uh, it's just everything this week has just been tainted by Kobe's death. Uh, he died on Sunday. He'd been to Mass with his daughter in the morning and uh, he died, I think it was about 10 o'clock uh, California time uh, on Sunday morning. You said that in New York people were out 
visibly moved by that. Is it unusual for an American sports star to have such a universal uh, love? I mean, he was celebrated in L.A. Lots of celebrities were always on the front row at his matches and so on. I hadn't realised he was such a big figure even in New York. Well, I think that the, the Americans really love their sporting heroes. They absolutely worship them. And nearly every single bar in New York has TVs everywhere. And you see the American football that's on twice, the big matches twice a week, uh, the basketball. Basketball is huge. The NBA is just enormous. And there are specific figures. You know, LeBron James is another one. He was a friend of Kobe Bryant. He's been in tears as well this week. LeBron is enormous and he's just passed Kobe's uh, record so Kobe then went down to third and uh, he congratulated LeBron James the day before he died saying you know good on you you've passed the record uh, they just really admire their heroes unlike in Britain when we build them up to knock them down in America they build them up and they build them up again because they just love their sporting heroes and they're re really great role models a lot of these people in sports LeBron James in particular, they do a lot for charity and for young people. Jackie, thanks so much. A sad week. It is indeed. And that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify and leave us a review. And if you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back next Friday and every week with your Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye. Goodbye.